All right, Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18, reading through verse 29. Give your attention as I read God's word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth was dispersed, or from these the whole earth was populated. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Kind of a downer, (laughs) in a sense of, you know, to to end the story of Noah, uh, to, to see this story of a failure, right? This is, this is what it is. It is, a, it is a failure on the part of Noah, uh, and it goes to show that Noah, though he was counted as righteous, though he found favor with the Lord, though he walked with the Lord, was a flawed, sinful human being like all of us. Um, he's no different than us. We're no different from, than, than him. And we see other things here, of course, too, as we will expand on these tonight. But just A recap again from last time, which would have been about two weeks ago. We looked at chapter 8, verse 20, and we went through chapter 17, verse 9, as um, Noah is off the ark at this point. Uh, The 150 days plus that Noah had been on the ark as judgment, the waters of judgment washed over the earth and destroyed all living things except that which was on the ark or the sea creatures. And Noah comes off the ark, right? The Lord told Noah, get off the ark. So he gets off the ark. And as we saw last time, the first thing Noah does is he worships, right? He builds an altar to the Lord and sacrifices to him. And they were burnt offerings. And we looked into that, how the burnt offering is a a whole offering. The, the, The animal is completely consumed in the sacrifice. These are the same types of sacrifices that the children of Israel would offer once they received the law of Moses. I mean, they've already given, been given these instructions by the time they are hearing these stories. As Moses is writing this, they already have these instructions. So they already know that a burnt offering is an atoning offering. In a sense, Noah is giving thanks and worshiping the Lord for his deliverance. And then the, then, then the Lord saw the... the um, Sacrifice and it pleased him, and he makes a covenant. He blesses Noah. He tells him to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He talks about uh, instituting, if you will, uh, capital punishment. The the principle of a life for a life. 
uh, as we see here in verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Now, I didn't touch upon this last time, but I want to touch upon it here. The first is that there are some who will tell you, I don't agree with them, but there are some who will tell you that when Adam fell, he lost the image of God. That's completely untrue. And that's proved by this verse here that says, for God made man in his own image. The Lord says this to Noah after the fall, right? So Noah, so mankind after the fall still retains the image of God. Now, of course, that image is shattered. My, you know, I don't know if I came up with this originally, but you know, if you think about uh, an image being cast in a mirror, and if you then take uh, a hammer or your fist and then smash into the mirror, you'd create a, you know, a shattered mirror, right? Assuming, let's say, all the pieces still kind of stay in place, but you got all the, you know, the spider web shattered through there. Right now, that image, it's still there. You might still be able to make out that image, but now that image is distorted. That image is blurred. It's, it's, it's not in focus. It's not what it should be. That's, in a sense, the image of God in man after the fall. It's a shattered image. It's a broken image. It's an image that needs to be restored. Uh, and it's restored in Christ, who is the perfect image of God. Right? Christ is the true Son of God. He is the exact imprint of the image of God. And then we are, those who are in Christ are conformed into that image. So that image of God is restored in us through Christ. But here we learn that even though man has fallen, he is still in the image of God. And, and that's the reason why, in a sense, the death penalty for murder is instituted. Because taking the life of the image of God is one of the most heinous crimes you could do. It is an affront against God himself to, to murder or to take the life of one of his image bearers. So as punishment, your life becomes forfeit. And then we looked at some other things too. You know, we considered a little bit of the, the lex talionis or the law of retaliation, meaning that um, you know, you'll see that in, in, in the, later in the Pentateuch. But you know, you're, you're, we learned you know, that punishment is to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. In other words, you cannot have the punishment exceed what the crime is. So if someone knocks your tooth out, you don't go and kill them, okay? You know, it kind of reminds me of, and I, I don't know if this movie is going to be in your, the, the Untouchables with Kevin Costner. Have you seen that one? Okay. So there's this great scene where Kevin Costner, who plays Elliot Ness, he's trying to break the mob, and he doesn't know how to get into it, and, and he befriends Sean Connery, who's a Chicago cop. And he says, you want to be, defeat Compone? I'll tell you what you got to do. If he puts one of yours in the hospital, you got to put one of his in the morgue. So, you know, very much not the Lex Talionis, okay? But, but the idea here is that uh, the, the punishment should, should fit the crime. And then God makes a covenant with Noah. He establishes a covenant. It's, and we call this, it's the Noahic covenant. It's a, it's a common grace covenant, but it's established with every living creature, right? Verse 10 of chapter 9. I will make my covenant with you, your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is, uh, it is for every beast of the earth. He establishes his covenant, and the covenant is, in a sense, just that life will continue. Seasons will continue. The natural order will continue until, well, until the end, but... Never again will the earth be destroyed by the, the waters of the flood. Okay? So in other words, 
This covenant is to establish seasons and times and the natural order and, and life. And as we'll see in a moment, it, it sort of sets the stage so that the new covenant can come and take place. In other words, God made a promise back in Genesis 3.15 that the head of the serpent would be crushed. Well, the Noahic covenant guarantees that that head-crushing seed of the woman will come, and, will come to be in the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians 4. So, he establishes a covenant. So, Noah worships, God blesses him, and God makes a covenant. That's what we saw last time. Now, as we go into this passage tonight, just the remaining verses of chapter 9, um, kind of some of the themes that I see coming out of here, it's going to be kind of weird, but I'm calling it new creation, new fall, and new curse. Okay? New creation, new fall, and new curse as we look at Noah and the vineyard. And my theme statement for tonight essentially is this. The climax of the story of Noah sees a new creation, a new fall, and a new curse as the story of the seed of the woman marches on. So if you're trying to write that down, maybe I went too fast, I'll repeat that. The climax of the story of Noah sees a new creation, a new fall, and a new curse as the story of the seed of the woman marches on. So first we're going to look at new creation, verses 18 and 19. As we see here again, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark, and in case you were wondering what their names were, we're told again, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then we get a parenthetical comment. Ham was the father of Canaan. We're going to see that being mentioned twice in this passage. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed, or from these the whole earth was populated. So again, when last we saw Noah, he came off the ark, had offered a sacrifice of praise and worship to the Lord who had delivered him from the judgment of the flood. God blesses Noah and makes a covenant with him and every living thing on the earth. As we said, this is the Noahic covenant. It's a common grace covenant. It's not a saving covenant, meaning that it is God showing common grace, his good will toward all men in that, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Okay, The sun shines on the wicked man's farm as it does on the righteous man's farm. Okay, The rain comes on the righteous man's farm as it does on the wicked man's farm. You may be thinking, well, the rain hasn't come on my farm and I go to church every Sunday. Well, I don't know what to tell you there. Bring it, bring it up to, the, to, to God who controls the weather. But the point is, is that common grace, it, it is common to all. It is grace that is shown to all. In common grace, God is, in a sense, withholding judgment. He's not excusing sin. He's not overlooking sin. Uh, as Paul says in Romans 2.4, sin is being stored up during this time. Or his wrath, I should say, is being stored up for the sin of man, which is a prompting for us to repent while the time is still here. Um, but as we come into our passage here, we see that the new creation after the flood will be populated from the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I kind of brought this idea of new creation up before when Noah steps out on the ark because in a, in, a, in a very real sense, this is a new creation, right? Uh, you know, the original creation when God created everything in Genesis 1, 
it says, you know, it came out from the waters and, and, and then, you know, the earth was populated and then sin covered the whole earth and then there was the judgment. But as we were looking through the flood, the flood was a catastrophic judgment. It was a catastrophe of, of to use the word, epic proportions, of biblical proportions. It wiped out the entire population of every living thing on the earth. In fact, I believe that the entire geography of the earth was changed as perhaps what was at one time one continent was now broken up into many. Mountains that were probably not very tall are now very, very tall. You had great seismic activity during this entire period of time during the flood. So when Noah steps off the ark, it is not the earth that he left when he went onto the ark. So it's a new creation in that sense. And, you know, again... The Bible makes, you know, it makes no bones about comparing the judgment during Noah's flood and what will happen when Jesus returns. Because that's what Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, right? So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And what's going to happen when the Son of Man comes? Well, those who are righteous will enter into a new creation. That will be similar, but not the same as the old creation. Except in this new creation... It'll be, it'll be perfect. It'll be the new heavens and the new earth. There'll be no sin, no death, no judgment, no, no sorrow, no tears, no nothing. Unlike this new creation, where there's still sin, as we're going to see in a, in a very short moment here. So it's a new creation, and we see that the earth is populated by the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It was these three, the sons of Noah, from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now this is kind of pointing forward to what we're going to see in uh, Genesis 10 and 11, right? It's prefiguring this. Uh, again, this will be expanded in chapter 10 when we see the table of nations. And I'll probably put it on the back of it uh, next time too. But on the back of your handout, there's a map. Now, unfortunately, I do not have a color printer. <laughs> so you're going to have to try to make sense of the shades of gray. But... Um, those, you, okay, the, the descendants of Ham, you can kind of tell because they're the ones that are shaded. So all those, most of those names there that you see, because Canaan is right kind of in the middle of the map, and all those names around it are uh, the sons of Ham, right? And they kind of populated in that fertile crescent area. Um, kind of hard to tell between the sons of Shem and Japheth. The sons of Shem would have been more in that Mesopotamian area by the Persian Gulf, and more in the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. Or Fred's saying we should get a color printer for the... For, oh. Yeah, okay. I can send you the, 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 the image. But, the, you know, the sons of Japheth, the descendants of Japheth, you'll, on this map, they, they would be in Asia Minor and in, um, in Europe. So, you know, as we'll see, like I said, it's, these are all the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they do spread across the known world at that time. And they, you know, they, they populate most of those areas. So again, it is from these that the, the world is populated. Now, skeptics are going to scoff, right? You know, you can look at any number of articles, and they'll say, how can you get what we have today, 8 billion people, give or take, out of eight people if you believe that this is only 4,500 years ago. 
Well, if you look at answers in Genesis, they have many, many articles that talk about this. And, and I did this math, and you can actually easily get 8 billion people in 4,500 years if you start with 8 people, right? You know, estimates say that nowadays population doubles every 40 to 50 years. So even if you take a very conservative estimate, and this article I saw on Answers in Genesis said, let's say the population of the Earth doubles every 150 years. Okay? So if you figure that out, 4,500 years, divide that by 150, that's going to be 32 doublings. Right? You apply 32 doublings to 8, you're going to get well over 8 billion people. So it's very possible to get 8 billion people in 4,500 years. In fact, you can turn that question back on the skeptics and say, if you believe in billions of years, and if you think the human race has been on this planet for tens and tens of thousands of years, why aren't there more people on this earth? <laughs> right? If, even if you take a more conservative estimate of doubling, like say every 200 years, 10,000 years, 50,000 years, 100,000 years, that's a long time. 4,500 years is a long time. Okay? <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't appreciate the size of these numbers because we're so inundated with billions of years. So when you think of billions, what's 4,500? But if, again, if you think it's, it's been 500 years since the Reformation, that's a long time ago. That's only one-ninth of the, of the span of time we're talking of here. 500 years ago is the Reformation. How many people have you know, lived in, I mean, heck, when I was a kid, the population of the earth was less than 6 billion. And in, in 40 years, it's gone from less than 6 billion to 8 billion. Yeah, no, this, this, is not, this is not hard, okay? So they're going to scoff at this, but it's, like as I said, by conservative standards, you can get to 8 billion people from 8 people in 4,500 years. Now, just closing off this first part, God commanded Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply. The same command he gives to Adam um, when he places him in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply, and we see that they did. Right? As we're going to see, like I said, next time, when you read chapter 10, these are all the descendants of, well, at least most of them, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They populated the world. And, and we are all, then, descendants of Noah and his sons. We're all Noahites, if, that's a, if you can use that word, if I can make up a word tonight. We are all descendants of Noah, just as we're all descendants of Adam. Which, and then just to maybe bring in a kind of a little bit of a side um, application to this, it kind of makes any kind of idea of racism kind of silly, right? I mean, this idea of racism that people with darker skin or people with lighter skin are different races is, is, is ridiculous considering we all come from Noah. There's only one race and it's the human race. And that makes racism or prejudice or whatever you want to call it, uh, it makes it... Um, well, obviously sin, since we're all, in a sense, related. Now we're all in very distantly related, unless, of course, you're from Sutton or Henderson. You may not be as distantly related as you originally thought, but we are all related in one way, shape, or form. Okay? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> no. That's a whole different kind of... All right, so that's new creation. Let's look now at new fall, verses 20 through 23. 80% of us 
<laughs> well, 100% of us here are related. Again, we're all from Noah. <laughs> all right. Chapter, uh, uh, verse 20 and through 23. New fall. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now here's where the story, if you read this, and if you kind of keep in mind the story of Adam, you're going to see a whole bunch of parallels here. Okay? Um, like Adam, Noah was told to be fruitful and multiply. Like Adam, Noah is the father of the whole human race, given that everyone else on the planet died except for his family. Like Adam, Noah was a man of the earth. Adam was put into a garden to tend it. Noah planted a garden or a vineyard, right? In fact, where he says there, and Noah um, became or began to be a man of the soil, that word soil is the word for earth in Hebrews, Adama, right? Adam came from Adama. Adam came from Adama. The man is of the dust, the dirt, the soil. We see that Noah planted a vineyard. And, and so while Adam was to keep and tend the garden temple of God, here we see Noah keeping a vineyard. Now, so far, so good. Until, like Adam, Noah fell as well. He committed a sin. Adam fell from eating a forbidden fruit. Noah fell by partaking too much of a fruit, <laughs> the fruit of the vine, right, from the vineyard. Notice, too, how nakedness plays a role in both Adam's sin and Noah's sin. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and, you know, of course, Satan tempted them by saying, when you eat of it, you will become like God because you will know good from evil. Well, what did they end up knowing once they ate the fruit? They were naked. <laughs> I don't know if that's like God. Is God naked? But no, they became they, be, they, they noticed that they were naked, and then what happened? They were ashamed, right? Well, Noah, in a sense, disgraces himself by becoming drunk and getting naked. Yeah. Now back to Noah's drunkenness, of course. Now, you know, the Bible does not forbid alcohol, but it does certainly forbid drunkenness. There is no doubt about that. If you just, just a few passages to point this out Proverbs 23. I think I may have read this during a men's breakfast. No, we were not drinking during the men's breakfast. Okay. Well, not, not alcohol. We were drinking orange juice and coffee. <laughs> the other legal drug. Um, but Proverbs 23, verse 29 to 35. 
this is in a section. Um, these are not necessarily Proverbs of Solomon, but these are other Proverbs that have been collected. And I just kind of like this one because it's funny. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? I like that because when you're drunk and you injure yourself, you have no idea why you injured yourself. You wake up, you're like, well, how did, I, how did that happen? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go and try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, maybe pink elephants and things like that. And your heart utter perverse things. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> um, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mass. So, you know, think about, you know, tottering back and forth, things like that. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. This guy must be really wasted. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. <laughs> okay, so there you have it, right? Um, now, it's not forbidding drunkenness, but it's certainly telling you the folly of drunkenness. It's telling you that nothing good comes out of drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, Paul there says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So the contrast there, he's not saying that you have to be drunk with the Spirit, but if you're drunk, you are filled with alcohol, right? In the same manner, if you, are, if you are living the Christian life, you are filled with the Spirit. So do not be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. We looked at this this morning in the sermon in 1 Corinthians 6. There, Paul is listing a bunch of sins Where he says there in verse 10, well, I'll just start in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, so who are the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, there you go, revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And of course, I can't read that without reading verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now he's writing this to the Corinthians because they were thinking whatever is done in the body doesn't matter. I, I could, yeah, it's Gnostic. It's exactly what that is. It's Gnostic. My body doesn't matter as long as my soul is, is saved. And Paul's like, no, no, no. Later on he'll say, your body is a temple. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. Thus, you need to act like the fact that you are sanctified. Because you are sanctified. He calls them saints early on. He says, you are sanctified. You are justified. Now, start living like it. But he mentions drunkenness. Same thing in Galatians 5, when Paul is saying, what are the works of the spirit? Or, sorry, the works of the flesh? Uh, the works of the flesh include, among other things, in verse 21... Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. Very, very similar to 1 Corinthians 6. Peter doesn't want to be left out. 
So Peter chimes in in 1 Peter 4, verse 3, where he talks about the sufferings of Christ, that if you've suffered in the flesh, um, you've ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then he goes on and says, because the time has passed, brothers and sisters, that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. That time is done, he's saying to believers. That's what you used to do. Now you need to live your time in the flesh for the service of God. You need to live for the will of God. Do not engage in those things that you once did. You have to have a break from your old life in that sense. So, you know, there's more passages we could turn to that talk about drunkenness. But here we see Noah became drunk. So as I said earlier, even righteous Noah, even Noah who found favor in the eyes of God, Noah who walked with God, Noah who was, who the, his first instinct when he came off the ark was to worship is still a man. Right? Now, we should not revel in the sin, but isn't it good to know that Noah was a man? Right? That Noah needed salvation. Right? Hebrews 11 talks about how Noah did these wonderful things, not because he was a wonderful man. He did all these wonderful things by faith. Right? Hebrews 11, very important. By faith. They call it the Faith Hall of Fame. And I used to call it that. And then I heard somebody say, this is, a, this is like a, a rogues gallery, if you will. If you read through the names in there, yeah, some of them are, you know, Daniel, Joseph, you know, Moses. But then they include Samson and Jephthah and, and guys like that. And you're like, this is a rogues gallery, right? Even the best in that list, you know, Abraham's usually exalted, right? Well, you know, when we get to Abraham's story, you're going to see, well, he did, you know, one chapter, he's like, Righteous and walking with the Lord, the next thing he's telling Pharaoh that his wife is his sister, so that she can, you know, so he doesn't get killed, right? So it's like, and then he repeats that. It's like, Abraham, come on. No. Noah's a man just like the rest of us. He needs a savior just like the rest of us. He lived by faith, and that's what pleased God. And that's what works for us too. We we are pleasing to God if we live a life of faith. Now, while Noah's sin is bad enough, the passage seems to focus on the sin of Ham. You're like, well, who's Ham? Well, that's one of his sons. And we notice here, remember I said earlier, twice Ham is identified as the father of Canaan. Now, it's interesting because we learn later that Ham was his youngest, but in every listing of, of the sons, Ham is listed second, which is kind of interesting because usually you... If you're named, I mean, when I name my kids, I say Matt, Lauren, and Jeremy, and I, I'm going down from the oldest to the youngest. I don't say Matt, Jeremy, and Lauren. Lauren would not like that <laughs> if I said that for one. But I usually, it's just, that's just kind of the way we do things. Oldest, and then next oldest, and then next oldest until you get to the end. But I'm not quite sure why. There doesn't seem to be any reason I could find that made, you know, made me want to say, okay, that's the reason. But Ham is singled out. He is definitely singled out here. And his sin, as I said, was in dishonoring his father. 
That's what we're going to see here. He dishonors his father. He mocks his father. He, he uncovers his shame and then goes back and tells his brothers. Like, hey, dad's drunk. Let's go have a chuckle at this. Now, there's some that would say, you know, when he saw his nakedness, that maybe Ham was engaging in some kind of illicit activity. I think that kind of plays on what you're saying in Leviticus. But usually they talk about the uncovering of the nakedness, and that's, that's a euphemism for you're having sexual relations with somebody that you should not have. Um, do not uncover your father's nakedness because it's his, it's his nakedness, right? Do, in other words, don't, don't sleep with your mother because that's your father's uh, spouse, right? <laughs> that, that's his, that's his uh, one flesh union. But anyway, Ham here disregards the fifth commandment. Like, well, that doesn't sound so bad, right? Well, Exodus 20, of course, we know that verse very well. You shall honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. So there's even, as Paul will say later on in Ephesians 6, he says it's the first commandment with a promise, that if you honor your father and mother, you will live long in the land. Now later on in Exodus, the next chapter, in fact, Exodus 21, in verse 17, we read, whoever curses or dishonors, his father or his mother shall be put to death. Like, whoa! Death penalty for... I mean, I, go, I look back at my own life as a kid, and there are not a few times that I raise my voice and dishonor my parents, and if I were living back in these days, I would be taken out, and, or at least I should have been taken out and stoned. Death penalty for dishonoring father and mother See, the same thing, it's expanded in Deuteronomy, the second reading of the law. Deuteronomy is literally what it means, the second law. It's just the law given to the younger generation as they are about to enter into the promised land because they weren't really old enough when the law was originally given. But in Exodus, sorry, Deuteronomy 27, verse 16, same thing. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or or his mother, and all the people shall say amen. And of course, that curse brought the death penalty. Violation of the fifth commandment, punishable by death. So where Ham took great pains to shame his father, we see here sons one and two take great pains to cover their father's sin and shame, thus showing honor to their father. So Ham sees his father, goes, tells, goes, tell, he goes to tell his brothers, and then Shem and Japheth, what they do, I mean, I'm trying to picture this, they take a garment, they walk in backwards, and they kind of, without looking, cover their father, showing honor to the father. And all, the whole time, since their faces were turned backwards, they did not see their father's nakedness. You're like, what's all this about? Well, they're showing honor to their father, right? They are, they are honoring their father as well they should. Ham is not. For whatever reason, he's a sinner. Again, Shem's a sinner. Japheth's a sinner. Noah's a sinner. Noah's wife's a sinner. The three wives of the three sons are sinners. But Ham is showing dishonor to his father. So again, despite the flood, despite the fact that we're in new creation, 
We are still in a sin-fallen world. Noah acted shamefully. Ham acted dishonorably. And it's interesting because we, you, know, you hear this language of covering and uncovering. Here, just as Shem and, and Japheth covered their father's sin, so too does the blood of Christ cover a multitude of our sins, right? I mean, that's the whole idea of the sacrifice. It's a covering over of our sins by the blood of another, right? Um, what happened when Adam and Eve were naked and were shamed at the, at the end of that story? You know, they tried to cover their, themselves with fig leaves. And it was a bad plan, right? <laughs> fig leaves aren't going to last very long. So what does God do? He covers their shame. He covers their nakedness. He covers their sin with a better covering. The, an, the skins of an animal that were presumably slain in order to cover them. And now we see that his own precious son covers us. His righteousness covers over our sins. Say God does not judge us for our sins. So this idea of covering. Okay, so we've seen new creation, new fall, and now new curse. Verses 24 through 27. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And there's a play on words there. Japheth is the same, same root word in Hebrew for the word to enlarge. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So again, just as Adam was cursed when he sinned, here we see Noah pronounce a curse when he found out what Ham had done. Now, why is Canaan cursed? Right? <laughs> That's the big question. Why is Canaan cursed? Because twice, as I mentioned so far, Ham is referred, when it says Ham by himself, he is the father of Canaan. He is the father of Canaan. Why is that being referenced? Well, again, think of when was this written? To whom was this written? And where were they going? So who wrote Genesis? Moses. To whom did he write the book? The Israelites. Where are they at this point in time? They're, in, they're on the, you know, the plains of Moab getting ready to enter into the promised land. Who's in the promised land? The Canaanites, right? The, all the ites, right? The Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, the Hervishites, the Termites, the, the, uh, <laughs> the Parasites, the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we're, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. That's okay. I anticipated that. <laughs> so why Canaan? Well, as I said, why were the Israelites about to disperse, uh, disperse the, uh, dispossess the Canaanites? That's kind of, you know, what we're seeing here is that Noah is cursing Canaan, and it's being told again to the Israelites as they're about to go and dispossess the Canaanites from the land so they can make this connection. Why are we going here to, to disperse these people, to kick these people out? Well, because they're related to Ham, who did this great sin over Noah. Now notice it's only Canaan that's cursed. 
right? Ham has many sons, right? Only Canaan is cursed. Is the youngest? Yeah, at least in the order. Yeah, in the order, right? So the youngest, that, that was one comment said, well, the youngest is being cursed through the youngest. I think, well, I think it's best here to see Noah's curse as prophetic, okay? Noah, yes, he's pronouncing a curse on Canaan, but in a sense, he's also speaking prophecy because this is what's going to happen to Canaan. They are going to be the servants, right? They are going to be the servants. They are going to be, in a sense, cursed. They're going to be servants of God's people as they cross into the promised land. A um, couple of verses to point that out. Look in Joshua chapter 9. Now, this is, the people of Israel have already, already begun the, the conquest. They took over Jericho. They uh, had that instance at Ai where, uh, because somebody <laughs> stole some things and kept them, they weren't all dedicated. Um, when they went to go attack the city of Ai, um, they fell. They were defeated. And then, you know, you go through this whole process and you find out who had stolen the devoted items, and then that person and his family were killed. And then they go attack Ai, and then they're victorious because they're obeying the Lord again. And then you get the episode of the, um, then again, the covenant is renewed. And then you get what is called here the, the Gibeonite uh, deception. So the Gibeonites come in, and they, they pretend essentially that they're from somewhere else. And they're like, please take us in. Please re- you know, give us refuge. And they're like, okay, we'll give you refuge. And then you find out that they were actually, you know, the next town over. <laughs> they were just kind of deceiving the people of Israel. They're like, okay, well, guess what's going to happen to you? So then in chapter 9 of Joshua, verse 23, well, actually, let's just start in verse 22. Joshua summoned them, the Gibeonites, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water, for the house of my God. And then down in verse 27. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. We see a similar thing in Judges. Because you remember, the, even though the conquest was for the most part complete, it wasn't completely complete. And the next generation had to go in and kind of finish it, and they didn't didn't really do a good job. But in Judges chapter 1, verses 28 to 30, we read there, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but they became subject to forced labor. Now, of course, God said, if you don't drive them all out and you leave them, they're going to be a thorn in your side. <laughs> that's exactly what's happened. That's what's going to happen throughout the book of Judges. But that's, we're still like 3,000 years before that is happening. But here... God, or Noah says to Canaan, you shall be a servant to your brothers. And that's exactly what's going to happen, right? 
They are going to be Shem, as we're going to find out. The descendants of Shem become the Israelites. They become the sons of Abraham. They are descended in the line of Shem. So Ham, or Canaan, serves Shem. And, of course, Japheth as well. So we have the curse. Now, while it is... Oh, one thing I did want to mention. There, there's something, and I think this is kind of alluding to what you were bringing up. There's something that's called the curse of Ham. Okay? Uh, if you're, is anyone familiar with the curse of Ham? So the curse of Ham, essentially... Again, if you look at the map... Again, you can kind of tell, you can tell the descendants of Ham because they're the ones with the names that are in the shaded ovals, okay? So they're all along that coast there where Canaan is, but they're also in, in Egypt, northern Africa, and, 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 and below. So, you know, the descendants of Ham are those who eventually will uh, settle and populate Africa, North Africa, and perhaps even further south into the sub-Saharan continent. All right, so the descendants of Ham are the Africans, in a sense, right? So this is idea of the curse of Ham is that because of Ham's sin, black people should be subjugated. It's essentially what it boils down to, okay? It, it was a wrong-headed notion that was used to justify slavery and, and racism. Again, the curse is not on Ham. The curse is on Canaan. The curse is only on Canaan, not on any of Ham's other sons. So we need to reject that wrong-headed notion. Yep, we'll, we'll look at that. Yeah, so if you didn't hear that, um, one of the, the descendants of Ham is Nimrod. Now, I only remember Nimrod from watching Bugs Bunny cartoons, and it was used as a kind of an insult. You know, what a Nimrod, you know. Well, Nimrod is a mighty hunter, right? And, and it's essentially what his name. What's that? Yeah. So we'll, we'll see that. Nimrod uh, establishes the kingdom of Babel, which is the arch enemy of the people of God, right? It becomes symbolic of the arch enemies of the peoples of God. So, you've got, the, you've got the curse of Canaan. But then, Noah also pronounces a blessing on Shem and Japheth. But notice, while Can Canaan is one who is cursed, we see that it is the Lord, really, who is blessed, not necessarily Shem. Uh, Noah says, blessed be the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. And notice, uh, if your Bible capitalizes Lord for the uh, divine name, it's capitalized there. This is God's covenant name. Uh, and here we see, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. The Lord is the God of Shem, just as he will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? That's the, that's the point here, is that reference points to how God is not only the God of Shem, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in that line. They're in that line. When we see the, the descendants of Shem uh, later on in chapter 11, we're, just like they traced Adam from Seth to Noah, they're going to trace it from Shem all the way to Abram. Right? So Abram is in that line of, of Shem. 
And he's in that, that's, that's the, the line of promise. That's where the seed of the woman is going. Again, we're tracing the seed of the woman from way back in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman it starts with Seth, goes through Noah, and then passes on to Shem. But here, he is, uh, the Lord, the God of Shem, is blessed. And that Japheth is enlarged. And notice Japheth too is blessed. As I, know, as I mentioned earlier, there's a, a, a play on the words. Uh, Japheth sounds like the Hebrew word for enlarge. But Japheth, Japheth, that's a hard word to say if you're saying it fast. Japheth, his blessing is tied to Shem's. As we're told here, he dwells in the tents of Shem. Now I believe this speaks of the inclusive nature of salvation to all people. Again, think of Japheth. If you look on that map, Japheth essentially represents the Gentiles. He's the people of Asia Minor. He's the people that eventually settle Europe. They are, in a sense, the Gentiles. And the fact that he's going to, he, he is blessed and will dwell in the tents of Shem means that it's talking about this inclusive nature of salvation. I like how the prophet Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 2, which is also repeated in Malachi 4, or Micah 4, sorry, not Malachi. But in Isaiah 2, here we read, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. All the nations of the earth will find their refuge in Zion. They'll find their refuge in the house of the Lord on the mountain of the Lord which will be established as the highest. Not necessarily the tallest, but the most prominent. All the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords and the plowshares, and their spears and the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Later on in Isaiah, in the final chapter in 66, verse 19, similar thing here. I'll start in verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, those are actual sons of Japheth, to the coastlands afar off that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and so on. Again, this idea of gathering the nations. As we'll see in coming weeks in our study through the book of Ephesians, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 2. 
where he talks about the one new man in Christ, where he talks about initially the Gentiles, he said they were far off. Right? Chapter 2, verse 11 of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, Gentiles, that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but, favorite word, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that speaks of the temple courtyard, the the courtyard of the Gentiles. They were separated. They were not able to worship with the Jews. Now that wall has been torn down. Abolishing the law of commands in verse 15. And might reconcile us both to God, verse 16, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the mystery that Paul talks about later in chapter 3, verse 6. This, the mystery is this, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Noah here in chapter 9, verse 27, is essentially saying that The blessing to Japheth is that they will find shelter in the tents of Shem. That the Gentiles will find shelter in the tents of the people of God. Now, as far as an application for us, we don't punish a son for the sins of his father and vice versa, right? Ezekiel says that. The the son shall not be judged for the sins of the father, neither shall the father be judged for the sins of the son. Canaan is not being cursed so much for Ham's sin. Canaan himself is a sinner. As I said, this is prophetic. But here we see that salvation comes from the Lord as God, the Lord of Shem, the God of Shem is is blessed and let Canaan be a servant and Japheth will dwell in his tents. Now finally, the last couple of verses here. So we have new creation, new fall, new curse, same result. (laughs) Right? What happens to Noah? After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Where have we heard that one before? And he died. And he died. Chapter 5, right? Again, Noah, righteous guy, blessed by the Lord, um, found favor in the eyes of the Lord, a righteous man. He, along with everyone else, in chapter 5, suffers the legacy of death, right? In the end of chapter 5, we're told that Noah was 500 years old when Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then at the end of chapter 9, we find out he lived another 350 years, and he died. So it ends like Genesis 5 with the phrase, and he died. Despite Noah finding favor with God, it does not save him from death, at least physical death. Now, as I said, this passage closes out the generations of Noah, and then it's setting the stage for what's to come. All right? We, we have moved from the, well, you know, the fancy word, antediluvian. You're like, what does that mean? Before the flood. <laughs> we, we've moved from the world before the flood to now the post-diluvian world. What does that mean? It means after the flood. <laughs> so, 
These fancy words, right? We've moved from before the flood to the after the flood. What have we seen? New creation. But the fall is still alive and well. The curse of man is still alive and well. We are still sinners. The lives of Noah and his sons show that forth. Noah sinned. His sons sinned. And Shem and Japheth, well, they're sinners too, even though we don't see their sins uh, recorded here in Scripture. But it's setting the stage for what's to come. This is a new world. The lifespans we're going to see in chapter 11 begin to shrink. If you remember chapter 5, we saw these enormous lifespans, 900 years, 800 years. The youngest one was Enoch, and it was only because God took him. Right? And then the youngest one after that was uh, the Lamech, I think, who lived 777 years, and that's only because the flood stopped his life at that point. Okay, so you have these incredible lifespans. Then when you get to chapter 11, we're going to see these lifespans shrink and shrink and shrink. Uh, the, the oldest one after that, um, probably Shem, looks like he lived 500 years. Yeah. You know, and after that, they're just, they should begin to shrink. What's going on there? Well, we'll look at it then. But I think, again, because the geography changed, the climate changed, everything changed with, with the flood. It was, again, a catastrophic event. Lifespans begin to shrink. It's a new world. And it's setting the stage also for Abraham. It's because, you know, we're still in the, in the first major section of Genesis, right? It's going to cover the longest span of time from creation up to the time of Abraham. But it's just setting the stage, really, for what's going to come and take place. Because once Genesis 12 gets here, we're going to be in the story of Abraham, and that's going to cover the rest of the book. Abraham and his sons ending in Joseph and ending in their, um, their exodus, if you will, to Egypt. <laughs> and then we'll look in the book of Exodus as they exodus from Egypt. Okay? But you know, th- this is, again, all setting the stage. All setting the stage for what is to come. But we see, and what we'll see, in, again, in lessons to come, it is through Shem that this line of promise continues. The seed of the woman is preserved through the line of Shem. And it'll go from Shem onto a bunch of other people, and then finally it'll pick up again when we see Abram at the end of chapter 11 going into chapter 12. He continues the trek of the, the seed of the woman. And again, this is the, that promise. Again, that promise of salvation. We have to remember, God is, is, is faithful. God will not forget his promises. He made a promise, and he's going to keep it. And this is how he's going to keep it. He's going to preserve this line through the line of Shem. So I'll stop here. Next time, um, I will not be here on August 6th, so we will not have uh, a meeting on August 6th. The next meeting will be August 20th, Lord willing, by my calendar. I've made calendar mistakes before, but I think if you take 14 days from the 6th, you end up with the 20th, so my math seems to be right. (laughs) Um, But uh, that will be the next time we meet on August 20th, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 10.